0: Reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter two, verses one through four. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I am Jeff, one of the pastors here, and if we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to connect with you afterwards between services. Glad that you're here in worship this morning. Uh, I grew up uh, junior high and high school years in Oklahoma, and uh, during my high school years, I had a friend who uh, lived about a half an hour away, kind of on on the other side of the county. And uh, so to get to visit him, I had to drive through, uh, you know, a number of back roads, Now, to my 18-year-old mind, it didn't really make any sense to stop at a stop sign out in the middle of the country when there was clearly no traffic around. So I began to, you know, just sort of slow down and and stop briefly, just long enough to check for any cars and, and then speed up and go through. And over time, my stops got shorter and shorter until I finally got to the point where uh, if no cars were coming, I, you know, I would check around really carefully, but if no cars were coming, I'd just go through the stop sign. Well, one day something changed that. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, yes, I, I don't do that anymore, by the way, let me say that. Uh, I was proceeding in my usual manner, uh, approaching this intersection. Uh, hardly any traffic. I, I checked around. There was nobody coming. So uh, I was nearing the empty intersection when another car topped the hill coming towards me. Now, since it was coming towards me, it didn't really pose any danger, but it did pose a problem <laughs> because it was a police car. And uh, I, I did manage to uh, hit my brakes and stopped the car in time, and uh, I I didn't get any more punishment than an ugly scowl from the policeman as we passed each other, but that is not what changed my behavior. What scared me enough to stop doing that was what happened in the seconds between seeing that police car and actually stopping the car. I saw the police car, I took my foot off of the gas and put it on the brake, and then without thinking about it, my foot went right back to the gas. And then I slowed down in time to stop. I I hadn't chosen to do that. It wasn't a conscious effort, but I had trained myself for so long to ignore the stop sign that when I needed to pay attention to the stop sign, my muscle memory took over, and I was almost in real danger. I had continually ignored this red warning in front of me. And as a result, that signal was no longer meaningful to me. It was no longer clear. It's not because I didn't know any better. I mean, I got an A in driver's ed, and I, I passed my test on, I, yeah, on my permanent record, right? Make sure, that, make sure you note that. Uh, I passed my driver's test on the first time. I knew what stop signs were for. And I would have been very upset if someone had blown through a stop sign when I had the right-of-way. But I slowly drifted from knowing and agreeing with what was right and practicing it to deciding, I know better, I can handle it, I'm not in any danger, I've got it under control. Can any of you relate to that? The same thing happens in our lives in a hundred different ways, doesn't it? God's word, our conscience, people around us give us warning signs warning signals, and we either heed them or we ignore them. And if we ignore them long enough, we may eventually fail to recognize them as signals at all, except good ideas for other people. Well, we're continuing our series looking at this letter to the Hebrews this morning. Hebrews was written by an anonymous Christian leader. We don't know who it was, but someone who was known to the recipients. To these followers of Jesus who seem to have as we get later in the book, have been struggling in their faith, facing some challenges and, and difficulties. We don't know exactly what that was, but we get hints that there was opposition and hostility that they were facing, and that now following Jesus may have been costing them something. It was starting to become really difficult and dangerous. And the author is writing to those Christians and indirectly to us to help us see that Jesus is greater greater than any danger or threat that they were facing, greater than anything they'd be tempted to turn back to to try and find safety or comfort or an easier path. And today in the passage we're looking at, this writer issues a warning to these followers of Jesus who are in danger of drifting away from Christ, drifting away from being anchored to the good news of his kingdom and his rule, in their lives. If you haven't already, open your Bibles and turn them to Hebrews chapter 2. If you're using that uh, black Bible from the seat uh, underneath in front of you, that's on page 1187. And we're just going to follow a real simple outline today. Uh, I need to recognize the danger of drift, and then I want to know what do I do to fight the danger of drift. So let's get into it. You know, there's a, there's a fascinating phenomenon that psychologists have discovered called the third-person effect. And it describes a dynamic that happens to almost all of us like this. You show someone an ad, you have them listen to uh, lyrics to a song, you have them read an editorial, and then you ask them, do you think that affected you? And almost everyone will say, oh, no, no, that had no effect on me. Well, do you think it would affect other people? Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, the, ab- oh absolutely, I know my neighbors are going to be affected by that. It's always somebody else, right? Any kind of negative lyrics, negative messages, negative habits, something awful, that doesn't affect me. I, I can handle it. But I can see where it would affect other people. It's probably a problem for those people. Nobody ever thinks it's going to affect us. But if it's something positive, you know, like maybe a statement like, you know, we should be more generous. Oh, yeah, of course, I, I, that's going to affect me. And of course, I'm going to be more generous as a result. But I don't know about those other people. I'm going to listen to the message and internalize it. You know, it, it's kind of funny, right? But we all underrate the effect that negative things have on us. And we overestimate the effect that positive messages have on us. That's the third person effect. None of us, none of us think we're in danger of drifting away. But notice the writer to the Hebrews is sending this letter to Christians and he includes himself in the warning. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. If drifting away is a danger, and it's a danger that's directed towards us, towards God's people, then we need to be able to recognize what does it look like to drift away. What are some of the warning signs? And, and there's not necessarily any outlined here, but I'll just suggest a few. Maybe my sense of wonder at the greatness of God's rescue and salvation starts to grow dim. I don't really experience a lot of joy and gratitude for what God has done for me. The realities of heaven and hell seem distant, unreal, unimportant. I'm, I'm not really aware of the constant pull of the world and my own sinful flesh and the devil. My sin doesn't bother me that much. Prayer and time in God's word and sharing my faith and worship seem, seem more like duties than joys. And when I do listen to God, it's often to find out what other people ought to be doing and how other people need to change. And I'm not really sure if I'm growing in faith and hope and love. This is the first of five passages that we're going to see in this book of Hebrews that have kind of a, a warning and a, and a challenge, an exhortation, and encouragement in them. And the first thing, I think, is for us to try and understand what does drift look like? What is the nature of drift? Look at what the writer says here. Pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The, the word there is this image of like a, a ship being carried away by the currents and just sort of drifting away from the harbor, getting detached from its anchor and just being carried along by the waves. It's a reminder that we don't live in a lake, we we live in a river, and there's a current that is constantly pushing against us. And if we're not fighting against it, it's going to pull us along, inevitably, inevitably. Uh, The other image that kind of comes through this word is the sense of letting something slip away, like a spouse letting a wedding ring slip off a finger so that it's lost. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Neglect, it means to, to be careless of, to downplay, to make light of. And I think it's a really good word choice there because it's it doesn't require active rejection. It's as easy as doing nothing. It's letting ourselves be carried along. We just simply lose focus. We stop paying attention. We don't have to be actively opposed to the gospel to suffer loss that is being warned about here. How shall we escape? We we only have to drift. Because notice again that the author of the Hebrews is writing to people who have heard and responded the message. They're not rejecting it, but they're in danger of drifting away from it. Disaster can come through nothing more than benign neglect. Ask me about the story of my clogged downspouts and what that's meant for our basement, and I can tell you about what benign neglect can do. Think back to when you first heard the good news of Jesus, first heard and responded to the gospel. If you had simply done nothing, if you had not believed and responded, you would still be lost by doing nothing. So the writer makes this point in a way that will come up often in Hebrews then. He goes on to say, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Because the message that was declared by angels was reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution or punishment. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If if God's people beforehand received a just punishment for ignoring the message that came from angels, how much more? How could we possibly escape? if we ignored such a greater salvation? What is the nature of escaping and and retribution? Well, the author is ambiguous. There's there's no real picture here. What we can say is that there's a real danger. And punishment for disobedience and rebellion loom large in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the basis for that judgment is God's holy character, his divine love, in fact, because sin is what draws us away from him and warps us and corrupts us and ruins everything. So what is the danger? What is the result of that drift? The question that we're going to want answered here and as we come up against these passages in Hebrews is the one that maybe we're thinking of right now. Can I lose my salvation? It's an understandable question. It's a very important question. It's going to come up again and again in later passages, so I'm going to let Joey answer it. (laughs) Seriously. I'm, I'm not sure it really is the right question to ask. Maybe one of the things to ask ourselves is why do I want the answer to the question? Because one possibility is, do I want to know the answer so that I can know how much can I sin and still go to heaven? Or, maybe for other people, I'm asking, have I sinned so much that Jesus can't forgive me now? If I'm really asking how far can I drift and not be in danger, I'm definitely asking the wrong question. Why would I put myself in a position of potential danger? You see, Jesus teaches us to pray, deliver us from temptation, not, God, let me go into danger and trust that you're going to rescue me. Do you remember when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, and and one of Satan's temptations is, you know, God's word says that he will protect the one he loves, so if you really are the chosen of God, throw yourself off the temple and, and God will save you. I mean, would any of us throw ourselves off a cliff and say, God, I'm trusting you to save me? Why would we throw ourselves into spiritual danger and say, God, I'm trusting that you're going to save me? No, the, the writer is saying, no, that, that's foolishness. Is, is that the problem maybe that the writer is implicitly warning us against? That, that we tell ourselves, you know, I can always listen to Jesus later. Whatever box, whatever corner I paint myself into, I'm sure Jesus will help me get out of it. But what if you spend so much time ignoring Jesus and walking away from him and discounting what he says that you get to a point where you no longer want to listen to him? Why would you head down that path in the first place? Others are asking, have I drifted too far and lost my way? Will Jesus give up on me? And I think the answer that the writer would say is trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus and follow him back from wherever you are. Now, uh, I grew up in a musical family and uh, I like to sing. I've sung in some different choirs and uh, with family occasionally. And uh, sometimes we sing a cappella, you know, no accompaniment, which is always beautiful if you do it right, (laughs) but challenging. Because you always start on pitch, right? I mean, you have a starting note, and you start on pitch. The the problem is we all drift down and eventually go off key and end up flat. And it's no fun, after you're finished practicing, to have the piano come back in and hear how you dropped a half note or a whole note. We have to listen to each other. But most of all, we need to listen together to Jesus because he is the standard. I'm a decent singer. I can carry a pitch, but I can still go flat, and I need to listen to the piano and follow the director because I'm not good enough in myself. But see, the measure of my relationship with Jesus is not how well I sing, to kind of use that metaphor. It's how well I'm following his direction. It doesn't matter physically, obviously, whether I can sing on key or not. It's whether I let myself be corrected and be brought back into tune, in alignment with Jesus. Because, see, my confidence can never be in how well I am following him. My confidence has to be in how well Jesus has obeyed. But I show that my confidence is in Jesus by listening to him and following him. That's literally what it means to trust him, isn't it? I show that my hope is in Jesus because I trust and I follow him. I'm not hoping in me. I'm not trusting in me. The writer is not encouraging us towards introspective anxiety. We we don't need to beat ourselves up or doubt whether Jesus loves me every time I fail because I'm going to stumble and fall many times. I cannot measure focus on the measure of my obedience, but on the purpose, the engine, the motivation of my obedience. I'm obeying because I love and trust Jesus, because I am secure, because I am forgiven, because I love the Father, and I want to follow the Son. So then how do I fight that danger of drift? How do do I do that? Dr. Erwin Braverman is a dermatologist and uh, was director of medical residence at Yale Medical School. And uh, Braverman noticed that in our uh, high-tech, fast-paced medicine had tended, in his perspective, to de-emphasize careful physical exams, taking thorough patient histories. And he was concerned that doctors were losing their ability to really observe patients well. So he came up with a unique solution. He brought medical students into a university museum and gave them a puzzle that they couldn't solve instantly. He sat them down in front of a painting and told them to study it for 15 minutes and then discuss their observations with a guide and with other peers in their group. Look at the normal, not just the eye-catching, the students were told. Approach the work with an open mind move past first assumptions, revisit the subject again and again and again. Paintings have hidden details and stories behind them. And, and the idea was that it kind of becomes a substitute patient. And interestingly, after learning to observe a work of art and, and notice the details, the student's ability to describe patients improved dramatically. The process was shown to boost observational skill by more than 10%. At Harvard, medical students given eight hours of similar training produced nearly 40% more observations and offer more sophisticated, accurate notation on visual skill exam. I help fight the danger of drift by paying closer attention. That's what the writer is saying, isn't it? Therefore, we must pay closer attention. Remember, the background to this is everything that's happened in chapter one. Because of who Jesus is, because he is God in the flesh, because he rules and reigns, because he is the Lord and the Savior, because he is greater than any other message or any other messenger, we must pay even closer attention to him. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean study harder or, or get this into your heads. Because there are profound depths of philosophy and theology and knowledge in Christ and in Christianity, but pay closer attention isn't about knowing a lot of things or even necessarily having great intellectual gifts. that's not what the author of the Hebrews is getting at. He's, he's, he's not saying to study harder, learn New Testament Greek, build a library, uh, you know have a handle on systematic theology, I mean some are gifted and called and, and interested in doing those things. But pay attention is a challenge for all of us, not for a select few. It means to concentrate with a greater effort than we have been. That's all it means. It, it's, it means to listen and think on and live in light of what we have heard. Pay close attention, the writer says, to... Such a great salvation. See, so the writer wants to shape our thinking and stir our affections to see and to treasure Christ. To see what a great salvation we have, the amazing promises, the enduring hope, the transforming power. Bought it, bought at a tremendous price. Look in verses 3 and 4. This message was declared at first by the Lord. It was proven by those who heard Him firsthand and confirmed by God through signs and wonders and and then attested and confirmed by gifts of the Holy Spirit. Do Do you see what the writer is saying? Pay attention. Pay attention to how You've seen God working what your faith is founded on. Pay attention to how you've seen God making a difference in your life. How God has used your gifts to do something in other people's lives. I think it raises the question for us, so how does my listening to Jesus compare to my listening to other things? Because when we want to listen to something, we take steps to be intentional about that, right? If I want to listen to the news, I make sure there's a radio or a TV and it's tuned to the right channel, or I save links to websites and podcasts that I want to come back to. If there's a new book that I want, I'll I'll make sure, if it's at the library, to get it on the reserve list for me. And If I enjoy someone's music, I put them on my playlist. I make sure I have their CD in the car. I'm intentional to listen to the things that I care about. We all listen to something. So how does all this compare to how we are listening to what God says to us through his son? It doesn't mean we only listen to Christian music. We only watch Christian movies. I mean, I'm not even suggesting that's a great idea, frankly. Um, it, It means we are intentional in paying attention to Jesus. Paying attention to the message that we have heard, pay attention to God's holiness. Pay attention to our sinfulness. Pay attention to God's provision of a savior and a rescue. Pay attention to how God is pouring out grace in your life. Pay attention to God's guidance. So that when I eat, I'm reminded of God's goodness and his care. When I sleep, I'm reminded of the good gift of rest and how safe I am trusting to Him, and how I'm looking forward to an ultimate rest in Christ. When I work, I'm reminded of how God provides for me, the gifts and abilities that He's given me. And if I'm working with customers, I'm learning patience, right? And I'm reminded that we're all connected to each other. We all need one another. When I play, I I see God's creativity. I see His joy in what He's made, and I see it in nature, and But beyond that, I think one of the things that's most helpful is for us to go back and read those gospel accounts of Jesus' life and pay attention to what Jesus is actually like and what he is offering us. Come and follow me, Jesus says. Now just learn things about me. Actually follow me. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. Because I have come that you would have life. Do I see in Jesus a life that I want to have? A life of beauty and joy and confidence and hope and peace and self-giving and kindness and strength and goodness. And do I believe that Jesus really has the ability to help me live that kind of life? that that is actually what he's offering me. The most important question I can ever answer is, do I believe Jesus? Do I really believe that he can lead me into his own kind of life here and now? And that the best and wisest thing I could ever do with my life is to follow him and entrust myself to him. Because if I believe those things, I will pay closer attention to what Jesus is telling me. We're all looking for a life. The the world around us all day, every day, is bombarding us with offers of life through money or romance or power or family or possessions or comfort or experience or noble causes. Do I believe that Jesus is the one who can give me life. And that's why I want to pay closer attention to him. If you have heard Jesus' message and you have never responded to it, don't neglect this great salvation. Come to Jesus. What are you waiting for? See, Jesus tells a story about a landowner who puts his vineyard in the hands of tenant workers. And uh, they take care of the land, they care for the crops, and a certain amount goes to the landowner for rent. And the time comes for the rent to be paid. And so the landowner sends messengers to collect the rent. But the leaseholders don't want to do that. They beat up the messengers and kill some of them. And the landowner says, well, certainly they'll respect my son. So he sends the son who deserves respect and honor and obedience and love, and they kill him. It's one thing to reject the messengers. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Living in the landowner's property does not mean I know him, and it does not mean that I care about him, follow him, or am giving him the worship and obedience that he deserves because he is worthy. Will you listen to him? Will you love and follow and trust the Son? Because if you reject him, what is left? but A fearful anticipation of judgment. But if you come to him, if you receive him as Lord, if you welcome him as your rescue, if you give your life to him, he will accept you, forgive you, bring you into his family, and give you life and hope. Don't neglect such a great salvation. And just because you have heard and responded to the gospel, don't think that means we don't need to keep listening and responding and paying closer attention. Francis Chan gives this great word picture. He says, Let's say I tell my daughter to go clean a room. She comes back after an hour and says, You know, I prayed about it, I got together with my friends. And we studied what it would look like if I cleaned my room. I even memorized what you told me, clean your room. I can say it in Greek. That's not going to fly, right? He says, no, no, the issue is, are you actually going to clean your room? But why do we think that we can do that with Jesus sometimes? I mean, he's as black and white as you can get, right? Why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? Why would you call someone your master and not listen to him? See, there's a trap. Oh, man, there's, there's a trap that we can all fall into, that I've fallen into plenty of times, because I counsel and teach and preach. What can happen is I start to think that as long as I say good things and, and preach the truth, that's the important thing, right? I mean, that's the easy part. Well, I mean, preaching is hard. Ministry is hard, but, but that's really relatively the easy part that... that The hard part is not the talking about what God wants. The hard part is actually doing what God wants. You know, when God says, obey me and love people. If I get a preaching sermon on loving people, that's one thing. You know, it's easy to say we should obey God and love people. When it comes down to loving actual people with names and faces and and histories, that's so much harder. But when I look in the Bible, I see that's actually the thing God wants. Not the talking about it, not the knowing that I ought to do it, the actual doing it. The actual loving people, for example, people in your family, people at work, people online who drive you crazy, people at church that you have some unresolved thing with. The writer doesn't say we might drift, he says there's a danger that we will drift. And we must pay closer attention to Jesus, to the message, to what he is leading us towards. So that we will not wander off and get lost and just get carried along. But Christ is our anchor. And for those who trust in him, he keeps the the ship of our faith from being carried away by the currents of This world and our heart's own deceitfulness and temptation and we hold fast to him in ways that get worked out in our lives because to pay attention to him means to respond to him. There is an enemy who wants to deceive us, who wants to lull us into false confidence, who wants to destroy us if that were possible, but Jesus assures us that he will not lose any of the ones who have been entrusted to him by the Father. Will you trust him? Will you pay attention to him? Father, thank you. Thank you for this word of uh, warning, encouragement, challenge, exhortation. Lord, who can discern their hidden faults? Search us and try us. Father, we can see when we're honest how easy it is not just for us to drift, but the ways that we drift from you. Oh God, help us. Help us to trust you, to love you, to turn to Jesus, to find life and strength and hope to stay the course. Thank you that Jesus is our anchor. May he be the anchor for our souls, our lives. We pray it in his name. Amen.